Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Steve Rosen, who talks about his long-awaited book titled Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. First of all, believe it or not, cassettes are making a comeback. You know, we thought cassettes were left for dead, and vinyl was the way of the future. But vinyl sales and vinyl production is kind of plateauing a little bit. Not cassettes, though. In 2015, there were only 81,000 that were made the entire year in the United States. Last year, 44,000, and that represents a 443% increase. Now, take that with a grain of salt, considering that in 1988, there were 450 million cassettes that were manufactured. That said, Taylor Swift, Marin Morris, My Morning Jacket, Megan Thee Stallion, and other major artists now feature new releases on cassettes. Not only that, we have reissues by Tupac and Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and a host of others. But there are problems. Just like in vinyl, they're not making any more new pressers, so you have to take the old machines and refurb them. That's exactly what's happening with cassette replicators. So what that means is, even if this catches on in a big way, it's not going to be that easy to ramp up really fast. Now, like I said before, cassettes never really went away because there was always a market in religious and instructional and even the Library of Congress. So they were always around, at least to some degree, but now even the major labels are getting interested again. They're not expensive. They cost between $3 and $7 to make, and the runs typically go from about 200 to 1000 and the minimum is usually about 50. There's even a resurgence of cassette-only labels. Again, in 2015, this seemed to be a big thing, and then they kind of lost favor, and now they're back again. So, a younger generation of music consumers have discovered how much they love the sound of cassettes. Artists find that they're cheap and fast to make for merch. And that means that cassettes might soon become a new revenue source for the music business. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now don't be surprised if the next audio gear or guitar or musical instrument that you want to buy costs more. And believe it or not, it really doesn't have anything to do with inflation. All this manufacturing is starting to move away from China where it's been cheap for a long, long time. Now, consider that in 2022, about 50% of all musical instrument products that came through the U.S. distribution channel were made in China. Chinese factories accounted for 60% of the global acoustic guitar production, 63% of wind instrument production, 95% of bowed string instrument production, 
49% of electronic keyboards, and 59% of microphone and loudspeaker production. That's only part of the story. The components that include magnets for microphones and loudspeakers and pickups and resistors and vacuum tubes for amplifiers, piano keys and screws and connector wires, plastic extrusions, countless other critical parts for musical instruments and audio gear, they're all imported into the States and assembled into products, but guess what? They're coming from China. Now, the fact of the matter is that Musical instrument manufacturers have always tried to make things cheaper, and I guess you can say that for just about every manufacturer. But this started back in 1881, believe it or not. Steinway & Sons, the grand piano makers, moved its factory from Manhattan to Long Island City because of militant union organizers. Then we found that manufacturers moved to the southern states because labor was cheaper. Then they moved to Japan, then Korea, then Taiwan, and finally to China, where that's kind of been a home for MI and audio manufacturing for the last 20 years or so. That being said, just about every manufacturer is looking for a new place to manufacture, and a lot of that has to do with the Chinese government's zero-tolerance COVID lockdowns that disrupted the supply chain for at least the last couple of years. Vietnam is a pretty good candidate. It has much lower cost for labor, but it has very primitive infrastructure, and there are tariffs on raw materials or components that were sourced out of the country. India is another good one, and it has a large population, and not only that, an educated workforce, but there's a lot of red tape and a lot of regulations that really stop the manufacturing from going there. Mexico would be ideal because of the proximity to the North American market, and it has lower costs, but again, limited infrastructure, and there's a lot of government corruption. There are some possibilities, though. Indonesia is already a major producer of guitars and pianos, and Malaysia has a thriving electronics business. Problem is that they both currently lack the scale that China has. That being said, don't be surprised if the costs of instruments and audio electronics begin to rise pretty soon. But the cause won't be inflation. It's the musical instrument industry looking for a new manufacturing home. My guest this week is Steve Rosen, who's an esteemed rock journalist who's written for Guitar World, Guitar Player, Rolling Stone, Playboy, Classic Rock, among many others. And he's written books on Jeff Beck, Free and Bad Company, Black Sabbath, Bruce Springsteen, and Prince. His latest book is entitled Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. And it looks at his long friendship with the guitar god before he was famous until his death. Steve spent many hours with Edward at his Hollywood Hills guest house, up at Van Halen's 5150 studio, on airplanes and cars, and even jamming with Ed on several occasions. During the interview, we spoke about meeting Edward Van Halen before he was famous, jamming with the master, how he was misunderstood, his multiple personalities, going with him to NAMM shows, and much more. I spoke with Steve via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. I'd like to know what you were doing before you get into rock journalism. I, I had just, uh, I, I'd actually gone to UCLA. I'd gone, you know, to the UC here. Um, I, I suppose I wanted to pursue something in English. To be honest, I wanted to be a guitar player in a rock and roll band. And I, I, I played in bands, you know, since I, I was very young and played with buddies around, you know, and doing covers and stuff. And um, I actually started writing songs pretty early. And I mean, that was, that's really what I wanted to do. 
I mean, I always loved music. I loved writing. Uh, I loved reading. And I, I, I thought, well, maybe I can, I can find a way into the music thing by, by maybe writing about it, um, you know, by maybe interviewing some of these people and, you know, hanging out with managers and A&R people. And that was, you know, one of the reasons for, for, for getting into uh, the journalism thing. But I, I'm, I mean, at the heart of it, I, I, I wanted to play guitar and be a songwriter, you know, man, and play in bands. You know, I, I, I always thought I, I, I was a pretty good guitar player. I mean, I wasn't amazing. I mean, I didn't have, you know, nearly the gifts of obviously Edward or any of those people I'd go on to interview, but, but I, I was pretty good. Um, you know, I, I, I understood theory and, 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 you know, I thought my melodies and stuff were good. And I, you know, I, I thought I could make a living at it. And it, it just, was a truly difficult thing to do. You know, I kept playing and putting bands together. And, um, you know, back in the day, it was like sending out a cassette, you know, it was like, you know, calling somebody or sending out a letter. Hey, are you listening? You know, can I send you some songs? And the responses, you know, you know, for the most part being pretty positive. Yeah, we like what you're doing. Send us, you know, some new stuff. And you send them new stuff and it'd be like, okay, man, yeah, that's really good. You know, let us know what you're doing next. And, you know, I could just never get that nibble from from a publisher or a label or, you know, and, and, and in the meantime, I, I sort of began the music journalism thing and uh, doors were opening that way. And I was, you know, in the same room with managers and, you know, talking to, to musicians and stuff. And, and I thought that was, like I said, that would be a way in and hanging out at, you know, publicist offices for all the labels. And, um, you know, it's funny, man, you're a journalist first. And, you know, you're a musician second. And, and you know, it's, it's like that, that it's like that saying, you know, uh, those who can't teach. I mean, it's, it's really not true. But, uh, uh, you know, I almost found it more difficult to convince people, look, man, I really, I really do play guitar and I can write, you know, and, um, you know, the journalism was just a way in. Anyway, you know, so th that's kind of what I was doing beforehand. You know, I wrote for my, uh, I wrote for the, uh, uh, the paper at the Bruin, the Daily Bruin. And that was great, but 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 the 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 end line man was always you know wanting to play guitar and be a songwriter and 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 do that. What was your first gig as a writer? My first gig as a writer was getting a little getting a review. I remember the review. It was T Rex playing at the Hollywood Palladium here on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, in a, a little local softcore porn newspaper called the uh, LA Star. And I call it softcore, softcore porn, not because it had any kind of nasty pictures in it, um, but because the, the, the back of the, of the newspaper were all the massage ads, you know? And uh, so, you know, you'd put your quarter in the, it was one of those, you know, periodicals, you put the quarter in the vending machine and, you know, pull it up and, and you pull out your copy. I had been sending, you know, reviews out everywhere uh, because I, you know, I, I obviously wasn't able to do any interviews. I mean, you needed the management, you needed publicists to do that. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't just go and do an interview with, you know, Peter Frampton. I mean, I just, you, you just, you know, you know, it wasn't going to happen. So um, I thought, well, you know, I, I, I go to concerts, I do reviews and I send reviews everywhere, man, you know, sending them to, uh, 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 I sent him to a guitar player. 
which is a dumb thing because guitar player didn't run live reviews. Yeah. But I did get something back from Jim Crockett. The editor said, wow, you know, we, we like the writing. We don't run live reviews, but, you know, keep us in mind, you know. And I thought, wow, that's, that, that's cool. And, uh, you know, I sent them to Cream and Circus, and they all passed. And, uh, you know, one day I get, a, I get a copy of the L.A. Star. I was still living at home with my parents in the, in the mail. And I'm going, what is, what is this? And I open it up, and I look it through. And there's my little byline for my you know, review for, for the T-Rex, you know, this guy, Mark Yandel, the music editor, had printed it. And that was like a joyous moment, man. It's like, you know, I mean, obviously there was no money involved and nobody saw that review but me. But at that point in time, you know, man, I was, uh, yeah, I was Hunter Thompson and I was John Steinbeck, man. I was like, that's, that, that's all I need. Yeah, but you were published. Exactly, man. I tell you, seeing your name, uh, it was, it was unbelievable, you know, and you're always, and I went on to do some great things, you know, but, but it's, it was never quite that, that feeling of that first one, you know, I mean, it was different, different feelings, but, but that first one was, was amazing. So, uh, yeah, that was the first thing, the LA star. Um, then I got something in the LA free press, which is a pretty established, it was like an underground newspaper you know you may have you may know about it um you know there was like the, the free press bookstore which i love to go to which was like up in like on fairfax like the fairfax area which is like the very orthodox jew area man but you know amongst these all these shops selling you know menorahs and you know all this jewish paraphernalia was that was the la free press you know and they had like the black light posters man and yeah it was like a counterculture thing and i just loved going there so uh, yeah, having a little, and again, it was a live review. Having a having a review printed in the uh, LA in the uh, free press was was amazing, you know. And that one they paid me twenty bucks for, and I thought, oh my god, I, you know, I'm rich now. So yeah, well, yeah, those were fun, fun days, man. Okay, so finally you start to write for magazines. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, it it's a, it's a, it becomes a real stepping stone thing, you know. From so the LA Star, though no one saw it, it's like it it, it was a byline, you know. So um, uh, I don't know if I made xeroxes of it, but I then would send that out to like all the record labels. Hey, look, you know, I'm a writer, I've, I'm published, you know, and I, you, I hear nothing back, you know. But then the the free press story comes out, and, and free press carries a little bit of weight. So uh, I did the same thing. And um, some of the uh, the labels said, "Hey, you know, we'll 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 keep you in mind next time. You know, we have some tickets for shows." And then you, you know, um, uh, you, you now approach these these same magazines, Cream and Circus, and say, "Look, I've, I've got a couple of bylines, and and uh, you know, maybe they had tossed me some little story on 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 I don't know, I can't remember who those early early interviews were with." But um, yeah, man, it was just a stepping stone thing and getting on the, the list for the labels to receive the, the records. You know, I'm now receiving records so I can do reviews and, you know, I can call them up now and, and, and get concert tickets. And, um, you know, I can now contact the magazine. Hey, look, you know, uh, Wild Turkey is, is, is uh, uh, coming to town and um, I'm going to interview them. You know, can you guys use a story? Yeah, yeah, we can use a story. Send it to us. We'll see. So, you know, you just try to connect those dots with the publicists and management, you know, and then the magazines, you know, and, you know, you get one thing printed and, and then that leads to hopefully, a, you know, a publication in a, in a better magazine. 
those are really fun days, man. Though they were really challenging, and every one of those magazines turned me down, and they send their stuff back. Wow, well, it's really not what we write, what we run, and uh, you know, and it's like you cringe when you get those things. But it's like at least they're looking at this stuff, at least they're reading it, you know. And, you know, it's the uh, stupidity of youth. It's like, well, you know, you don't know any better. So you just, you know, you bang your head again against the against the next door. And, uh, you know, it opens a little bit more. And um, But those are fun days, man. The 70s as a freelance journalist, man, those were fun, fun days. Let's jump up to um, Guitar Player. Guitar Player came about through uh, Gibson and Strongberg. Gibson and Stromberg were the only, I believe at the time, uh, rock and roll publicity company. I mean, you know, uh, later, you know, you had, you know, Rogers and Cowan. And, uh, I mean, there were tons of them. It was, it was, it was, a, it was big business. But back then you had nobody, you know, doing publicity for rock and roll bands. Um, and, and they were, they were around uh, first, I believe. You know, so I mean, they were handling Jeff Beck. I mean, they were doing the Stones, or at least, you know, live, live Stones. Um, that band I mentioned earlier, Wild Turkey, which had one of the members from, from uh, Jethro Tull, Ben Cornick, the bass player. Um, Steely Dan, uh, Dr. Hook, uh, Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, English band. I mean, they just had this amazing roster of, of, of artists. And I cannot remember how... I was introduced to them, but they took me under their wing. And this is probably like late 72, early 73. And they just saw me as this new kid on the street, man. And they just took me under their wing and they opened every door and they, they made every one of their acts accessible to me, you know, and they got me Stones tickets. I didn't quite get a Stones interview, but I did get tickets to the, you know, see the Stones uh, uh, out here. But I mean, I, you know, I, I interviewed all those bands. I had a lot of those bands, honestly, I didn't particularly care for. But I knew, hey, you know, if I go and interview uh, Dr. Hook, you know, they're going to hook me up with Steely Dan or, or, you know, something like that. And that's what it was. And, and they, just, they just really took care of me. So I remember being in Lydia Woltev, one of the publicists there, uh, who was really the main person I, I was dealing with and the one who really opened all the doors for me. And um, we were talking, they handled Jeff Beck, as I mentioned. And she said, oh, w would you like to interview Jeff Beck? And I said, oh my God, are you kidding? I mean, he's my favorite guitar player in the world, still is. Um, I, I said, I'd give anything to interview Jeff Beck. She goes, well, let me see if I can set that up. So I'm there in the office, she gets on the phone, calls Jim Crockett, the editor for Guitar Player, while I'm sitting there. He goes, hi, Jim, Lydia, you know, and I've got this writer, you know, and, and, and he's going to be interviewing uh, Jeff Beck, and, and do you think you can use his story? And so she's talking, and, you know, I can't hear what, what, what is on, going on the other side of the conversation. And she gets off the phone, she goes, yeah, he goes, he'll, 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 he'll read it. He says, yeah, you know, you, you do it, you send it to him, and if he likes it, he'll run it. And so uh, she set it up, and I went and interviewed Jeff at the, at the Continental Hyatt House. This must be mid-June uh, June, July, August, 73. And I mean, I was terrified out of my mind. And I, I've been writing for a little while at that point, but interviewing Jeff Beckman, that was, I mean, that was it for me. I mean, you know, I, I, I played, you know, shapes of things and cover bands and Yardbridge songs. I mean, and, uh, you know, we did the interview and it came out what I thought, I thought it came out great. I remember sending it to Jim 
Crockett, you know, and, and getting a letter and, and saying, this is perfect. We love this. It's going to be a cover. Wow. So my very first story for Guitar Player turned out to be a cover of December 73. And uh, that was the beginning of a relationship that lasted uh, 73, I think, till 78, about five years. I ended up doing 16 covers for them, which turned out to be like a cover story every five months. I was like the main freelancer for them. And uh, yeah, that was amazing. That that opened up all kinds of doors. You know, through them, I, I, I interviewed, you know, Paige and went on the road with Zeppelin and, you know, Joe Walsh and John Entwistle and Wishbone Ash or one of my very favorite bands, uh, Richie Blackmore. I mean, that was an amazing time. Um, uh, at the time, I mean, there weren't a lot of guitar magazines around. Uh, guitar World came out in... I think their first year of publication was 81 or 82. Um, uh, so, I mean, I mean, if you were a guitar player, you wanted to be in Guitar Player Magazine. And I was like the guy, you know, I was like, they knew when the, uh, I was doing interviews with them, you know, potentially it's a cover story. And, you know, it's, I had a lot of uh, weight, you know, I carried a lot of weight. I had a lot of weight behind me, man. Those were just really fun days. You know, I, I love doing that stuff with Guitar Player. Let's jump up to Edward Van Halen. Yeah. Okay, so how did you meet him initially because you had a long relationship with him? Long relationship. Well, um, funny, uh, you know, we're talking about Guitar Player magazine. I, I, I never interviewed Ed for Guitar Player. Um, by the time I sort of met Ed in 77, my days at Guitar Player were kind of waning, and Jazz Obrecht, who came in as like a featured editor, Jazz started doing all the uh, interviews with Eddie, and he did some fantastic interviews. I was at the Whiskey one night. Cheap Trick was recording a live record, and I went to the Whiskey a lot back in the day. I mean, a lot. I mean, three or four days a week on average. I mean, I was there all the time. So to go, go and honestly, you know, see another band, it was like, oh, I, you know, I don't know. And, you know, I mean, at, at that point in time, the labels – we're like, well, what can we do for you? I mean, we'll give you a free tab, you know, we'll give you free tickets and, you know, we'll buy you a hamburger. I mean, it was just unbelievable. They would bend over backwards, you know, T-shirts and, you know, coffee mugs. I mean, it was just an amazing time uh, back then. But it's like, ah, oh, you know, I don't really want to go to the whiskey again. But it was like, cheap trick recording a live record. That, that's what's safe. So I took my brother and I was living uh, up in Laurel Canyon at the time on a street called Weepaw Way where Edward, Edward visited many times and, uh, you know, drove down to the, down to the whiskey, which is, you know, literally 10 minutes away. And we were standing downstairs waiting for Chief Trip to come on and somebody taps me on the shoulder and I turned around and it's Michelle Meyer. Michelle booked the club and she also booked uh, some other clubs around town. We talked earlier about me being a guitar player. I had a band at the time called Deluge and, uh, you know, we were trying to, you know, play wherever we could. And she had booked us into Madame Wong's East and West, these clubs she booked, which were pretty heavy clubs. I mean, I remember for, for them punk, well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For punk bands, you wanted to play there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, we weren't a punk band. I mean, I, I fancied myself, I don't know, somewhere between like a, I, I, I don't know, wishfully thinking Tom Petty, Peter Frampton. I mean, it was pretty melodic. You know, I had another guitar player, but I mean, she'd never heard the band and, and she booked us into those clubs. So I was instantly her lifelong friend. I, I love Michelle. She was amazing. She was all things guitar. Anything 
worth happening in Hollywood she knew about. So she taps on the shoulder and says, listen, there's somebody upstairs, you know, I want you to meet, he's Godhead. And that's her vernacular for beyond mortal. You know, if she dubbed you Godhead, you were, you were the elite of the elite. So we walk, up the sta- walk upstairs to the dressing rooms up the whiskey, which are dumps. You know, they reek of cigarettes and the floors are littered with cigarettes. And, you know, the walls are covered with the graffiti of, of bands, um, which if that graffiti is still there, I mean, there's probably some famous stuff up there. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, I mean, just really kind of dumpy little rooms. And, you know, off to the, you know, in the corner is this guy and he's smoking a cigarette. And we walk over and, uh, you know, he obviously, whoever this person was, had recognized Michelle. And, uh, you know, she says, uh, you know, uh, uh, Eddie Van Halen, Steve Rosen, Steve Rosen, Eddie Van Halen, Godhead. And he smiled. So obviously he knew what the, uh, what the term meant. And, you know, I, you know, I, I don't remember if she just described me as, you know, a, a writer or, or just, you know, left the room at that point. I said, Hey man, hi, you know, I, you know, I must've said that, you know, I, I, I write for, you know, guitar magazines and stuff, you know, and, and uh, we just started talking and and that's how it started. I, I mean, the things that are so hard to remember is one. I, I know that I had never seen him play at that point, and I think that was a huge part of this, you know, this connection thing that happened. I mean, by that time, by '77, I mean, I I interviewed some heavy guys, right? I'd interviewed Beck, I'd interviewed Blackmore, uh, John McLaughlin, um, you know, Dave Mason. I mean, some amazing guitar players. So. I was still in awe of these guys, but it wasn't quite so much the the nerd thing and, oh, my God, you know. So I, I don't think I would have been like that had I known what a remarkable player he was. But, you know, I'm sure it would have crept in. But not knowing how he played, you know, I think that was like, I, yeah, I was just talking to another guitar player from the strip, um, a guitar player whose band had just signed a big deal on Warner Brothers Records, and no other strip band had done that. So that was pretty remarkable in and of itself. And I'm thinking, my God, I can barely get a gig at some little club, you know, and here's this guy, my God, he's got a deal on Warner Brothers. To me, that was an unfathomable, fathomable goal, you know, and he had reached it. And, you know, we talked about that, and he was just so unassuming about all of it, you know, and but just so open, you know. We talked about Clapton and Cream was like, you know, Clapton with Cream was like, what am I, I mean, that was it for me, you know, and we talked about Blackmore, you know, who I loved, and uh, it was just an, an amazing conversation, you know, it's one of those conversations that I'd like to describe it as, you know, it had begun somewhere earlier, and you're just continuing the conversation here, right, you know, spiritually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, it was just, it was just really comfortable, you know, and, and I, I, I knew that he knew a lot about music, you know, because I talked to guys who would, you know, confess to knowing, yeah, well, I know a lot about Blackmore. And, you know, and they'd make one comment and, and I'd be like, oh, not that it was stupid. It was an obvious comment. And me being the guitar snob, you know, it's like, dude, you don't know anything. I wouldn't say that to him. But, but his insights mm-hmm. into Richie's playing, you know, and the vibrato bar stuff was, it was amazing. At the end of the night, you know, he gave me his phone number. said, hey, man, call me. I hope we talk again. And um, that was the beginning of it. Um, you know, I, I never in a million years, I never thought that the friendship, I never thought, I figured I'd probably run into him again, that I'd probably interview him again. Hey, he's on Warner's, I'm, I'm interviewing Warner's bands. We crossed that like that. But I never had a sense, honestly, that 
it would it would turn into to what it did. You know, I hope that would. I mean, I hope that was going to meet him again because he was such a good guy. Um, but uh, yeah, I never really, I really had any idea. Let's jump up to the book then. Yeah. Let's start with the name, Tone Chaser. How did you come up with that? Was it Eddie always chasing tone? Because I thought he had it and that was his tone. Yeah, right, right. Well, I think a lot of people thought that. And Ed, Ed would describe that as the brown sound. And, you know, yes, I believe Ed was always chasing tone. If I may, if I may be so bold, happen to have a copy. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, but... Uh, 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 on the inside is, uh, you know, the first major kind of photo you see. And, and I did want to give a shout out to my good friend, Niels Lozauer, who shot this amazing cover, shot this one. This is in July 78 from the Day on the Green. And obviously you can tell it's, it's the same session as the cover. Uh, Neil, for anyone who may not know, was a Van Halen's, you know, official, unofficial photographer. Uh, from, you know, kind of day one, I, I believe, until 84. So uh, Edward, in one of the last interviews we ever did, and I'm quoting, this is the quote I pulled here, I'm a tone chaser and I'm always chasing tone. It's that, it's that elusive thing you hear in your head that you just can't quite get. Yeah, so I'd ask him, I, I go, you know, wh what, what keeps you going? And that was his response. So no, he never found that, you know, and, and that's why he was who he was. And that's why, you know, always the experimentation. So the second that came out of his mouth, I, 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 I said to myself, well, I take that back, take that back. He said that to me around 2003. When I began the book in, in 2020, um, I was coming up with names. And I actually had posted, I'd written down some uh, potential names and I posted them, uh, blood, frets, and gears, uh, <laughs> you know, um, a life was this, you know, trying to be poetic. And, you know, it's like, what, what the, you know? And, and then I, and I don't know, somehow I thought, oh my God, tone chaser, that's it, you know? Uh, or, or actually it may have been as I was working through the book and I, and I came up on that interview because I would work off the interviews. I tried to work chronologically. And when I came to that, which is one of the final interviews we did, I heard tone chaser and I go, oh my God, that's it. That, that, that's who Edward was. And tone chaser is one word. Uh, and, and I must give credit for that to uh, Daniel Gray, who's the art director. Uh, you know, I had it as two words. Tone chaser, you know, is sort of as one word. I mean, that's that's the word it was. Yeah, know? it works better. Exactly, exactly. There you go. You had a long relationship with them, but it was more than just doing interviews, right? It, it, it was. I mean, in some respects, I mean, that's a really good question. If I think about it. Yeah, there were interviews, but certainly the friendship was not based on the interviews uh, whatsoever. And, and yeah, I mean, there was a lot more time spent in non-interviews than, than, there, than there were in interviews. Yeah, um, there were a lot of conversations that were recorded because I asked him at one point, let me digress for two minutes here. In 1985, I was going to write Edward's authorized biography. We talked. He says, yeah, man, no one else could write it but you. We signed a simple little contract. He actually gave me some money. So from that point forward, I tried to record everything I could. Even then, I missed a lot. You know, it's not like I could walk around with a, with a microphone in my, you know what I mean, then. 
even though he wouldn't have minded there's just no way I could have done that. Um, so, uh, so I tended to record a lot of stuff and he goes, yeah, man, record anything you want. So a lot of the times I was recording were just conversations between us. And in the book, I talk about these conversations. I call them uh, the twilight tapes because he'd usually call me very late at night, early in the morning, and he'd want to talk. Uh, uh, and it would be about music sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, but these weren't interviews. These were just conversations. And there were many more of those in the interview thing. But beyond that, it was just a lot of time, you know, spent watching him play guitar or, you know, there were some moments we jammed together, <laughs> which were just, you know. What was that like? Uh, honestly, man, you know, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to over romanticize it, but you were in the presence of somebody truly, uh, you know, truly remarkable. And again, I'd been in the presence of a lot of those people and I'd been with them when they were playing, you know, or they'd be warming up before the show. And, and, and look, you know, I, I've been up close and watched Steve Vai and, and it's, 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 it's insane. And I interviewed Jeff Beck that first time. I actually brought a guitar and I watched him play and that was spectacular, you know, and, you know, watching Edward, maybe because I knew him so well, it, it, it was, man, it was watching Da Vinci and John Steinbeck writing East of Eden. And it was, it was something unbelievable. And we all know how great he was. And I knew how great he was. And we heard him on record. We watched him in concert. But you watch somebody up close, not plugged in, and you can actually watch his hands and you'll watch how he holds the pick. And there is, it's beyond description. I tried to describe those things. Uh, so what was it like jamming with him? Honestly, it was trying not to gag. It was trying not to hyperventilate. And again, I'm not trying to be overdramatic. You know, it's just trying to, you know, keep cool because I, because whenever I would go to that place, he didn't like it. You know, and maybe I would have said something like, Ed, I can't jam with you. He said, just play guitar, man. You know, and he would diffuse the situation or he'd diffuse it as much as he could. So, you know, I'd, I'd start playing a riff and then, you know, he'd, he'd be playing bass and we'd just start playing and, and you, you try to forget who's, you know, three feet away from you playing bass. And um, it, it was amazing. And I could see how he would be with the band, you know, and, and how he'd try to draw things out of them and, 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 and not trying in any way to put himself up, up on this pedestal. I mean, I think he really, I think he wanted the best uh, with whomever he was playing with, you know, and, and I believe he was able to, you know, or at least he tried to draw that out. So those were amazing experiences. I can still feel what that's like, um, you know, sitting there with him. Do you think he was misunderstood? I think he was incredibly misunderstood. On, on some levels, Edward, you know, I had the question, you know, did Ed, did Ed have multi-personalities? Absolutely. Not in any uh, socio-strange way, but, but he, was, he was one person as a husband. He was one person, you know, later as a, as a um, father. He was one person as a brother. He was one person as a band leader. He was one person as my friend. On, on some levels, he was very—he was a very simple, basic guy. I came to believe, and, I, and I'm pretty positive it's true, that was all about respect with Edward, and that you could criticize him, say, "Hey, man, that—that's not right," or I, "I don't like that solo way. You can do better." But if it came from a 
a disrespectful place, then he shut off or, or he, he, he'd get pretty angry. Ed could get pretty mad. I mean, I never saw him lose his temper. Uh, honestly, he got pretty angry with me at times. Um, it, it was, um, it, it was intimidating. So, yeah, I, I think people looking from the outside, you know, Edward Van Halen, this extraordinary looking guy. I mean, he was fit, you know, he had, you know, beautiful hair and a beautiful face and a smile and he hit the clothes fell on him perfectly. And, you know, he was in a, a successful band and he was writing. It's like Edward, Edward, this Edward Van Halen had no problems in his life. Trust me, Ed, Edward had, had problems. Maybe not like you and me, you know, not money problems specifically, but he thought about things and he had, you know, emotional things going on with his family and the band. Yeah, I, I think he was really misunderstood. What makes me really sad, one, about, I don't want to give away too much about the book, but, you know, the way the relationship ended up. But beyond that, there was so much more I wanted to talk to him about. You know, I mean, I, mean, I wrote 580 pages. I mean, there were a thousand pages in me, you know, and, and, and you asked me this question, you, you know, was he misunderstood? I, I mean, I wanted to talk to him about these things I had talked about in depth. You know, I wanted to talk to him about his relationships with his family, with his mother, with his father. Those were different kinds of relationships with Al, you know, um, you know, and then with, then with Wolf and, and his marriages and, you know, you know, I mean, really heavy stuff that we only touched on, like I said, in some of these Twilight tape conversations. But, you know, um, now this stuff's gone forever. Yeah. I mean, Al, you know, may have some memories, and you know, but, but that's coming from Al. Uh, you know, but certainly he's probably the closest. I mean, then Valerie, and then Wolf. But, you know, obviously Wolf was born much later, so he doesn't know about those first, you know, years of Edward's life. So, yeah, that stuff is gone forever. You know, the parents are gone. Um, I don't know if he has any relatives, um, you know, that remember him. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's the sad thing, you know. Did he ever mention which version of the band he liked best? He never, uh, that's a good question. He never said that to me, and I never asked him. I can tell you that being with him over the course of the David Lee Roth era uh, and then the Sammy era and then the end of the, you know, Gary Sharon album, as it were, there was no doubt in my mind that he was most happy with the uh, David Lee Roth, which isn't to say that he didn't have extraordinary problems and, you know, emotional stuff going on with all those guys early on. But I know those first two, three records, I, I he was happiest. I saw it when I was with him, you know. Those were virgin days for him, right? You know, he was this kid, you know, playing in the Sunset Strip band. And he was now out in the road and playing with Sabbath. And he had played Sabbath songs, you know, during the cover days of Gazaris, you know. You know, he was touring, he had an album out. His writing was being exposed. You know, the world was coming to learn who this, who this kid was. I know that he was most joyous, most joyful uh, those early days. Which band was he happiest with? I couldn't tell you. I don't know. He went with them to NAMM shows as well, and that's always interesting because the attention big-time music celebrity gets at NAMM and just being in that circle is, is interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, the NAMM shows were uh, something else. Honestly, 
I'm I'm still shocked and surprised that Edward ever agreed to do those NAMM shows. And again, I write about it in the book. When he signed with Kramer, I thought that was the biggest mistake that he could have made. Yeah, why do that? You're Edward Van Halen. You could have them make guitars for you. You know, you can maybe tell people you play Kramer or not. Uh, but he, but he signed with him. And maybe you know, one of the caveats in the look. I'm I'm only hypothesizing here. Maybe one of the uh, you know conditions was you know you do uh, convention appearances for us. Why he would ever do that, I don't know, because he eschewed interviews. He didn't like doing them. He did not like that focus or attention on them. And that's basically, you know, sitting in a room, you know, with one other guy, not me necessarily, but one, you know, a journalist doing that. The NAM show, man, that's a different beast. Um, I don't know why he ever did those. I was with him at two, maybe three, and I've never seen a more uncomfortable Edward Van Halen in my life. Um, I mean, I saw it, you know, and he tried to put the smile on and people come up and Eddie signed this and Eddie signed that, you know, and I, I, I knew his body language well enough, you know, and he'd be there with a cigarette and he'd be slouched and he'd write something and he'd toss it out there, you know, and he was drinking this beer. Um, he was unhappy. And then I write about, you know, one damn show. And again, I kind of, I don't want to give that away where he was extraordinarily depressed and uh, that was horrible. I, I'd never seen him in that condition. And earlier that day, he had been at my pad. He had been on Weep, Weep Our Way, and he was totally cool. And from that point in the morning till whatever that was, late afternoon, when he was there at that NAMM show uh, at the uh, Kramer booth, man, he just, he, he changed. I don't know why he did it. I can remember being at Summer NAMM, and they used to have it in Chicago at McCormick Place. Yeah. And I was working for a company then, and McCormick Place is huge, and it's sort of on a slope. And I remember looking down the walkway, and it looked like a tsunami was coming down. Mm -hmm. There was all these people, and it kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it came towards me. And finally, I saw exactly why. And it was Ed and Valerie. This was early in the days when they were together. And, and it was a you know, celebrity power couple. But the enormity of the response and just the tail on the number of people that were following along was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, yeah the first NAMM show, I can't remember, that was like 85, 86. I, I, I can't remember. Um, but the same thing happened. I went with Ed. We drove down from 5150. And literally the second he walked in the NAMM doors, there was a buzz. I, I don't know how people, and by the time he reached the Kramer booth, yeah, it, it, I, I described it as the Pied Piper. I've yep. never seen anything like it. And there were some heavy people, as you well know, some heavy people go uh, to the NAMS because they're there, you know, they're endorsing gear and the manufacturers, you know, have them out there. So, I mean, I, I've been there, you know, Stevie Wonder, Jeff Beck, and I've never seen that type of, um, that type of thing happen. Yeah, Ed, Ed was beyond, the rock guy thing, he was, I don't know what he was, man, it, it was a legend. He was, I mean, people loved him. They, they adored him. Look, people loved Jimmy Page and, and, and those kinds of people, but, but it was different. That adulation for those guys, I think, you know, stemmed from them as musicians with Ed. It went beyond him being a guitar player. Of course, that's where it emanated from, but they, they, they just loved him as this human being. I, I, I don't know how to describe it. I saw it a lot. One last question for you, Steve. 
What prompted you to finally write the book? I'd like to think I had a, a really definitive answer for you. I had been, uh, friends had, had said along the way, man, you should write the book. You know, I, you were supposed to do the book back in the day. You should write the book. And I kept avoiding that. I thought, it, uh, honestly, I thought the amount of work it would take to go through all the interviews and put it all together and figure out the chronology and organize everything. I thought, I, I can't do it. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not up to that, you know. So that was a huge part of it. And there was another part of it where I thought I didn't feel up to the task. I didn't feel like Stephen Rosen as a writer was good enough to write this book about Edward Van Halen, the guitar player. I, I, I thought that I would fall short, that, that what I would write would, would just be a shadow of, of who he was, you know. And I thought, my God, if I think I'm going to write that kind of a book, don't write it. Because at the end of the day, you're going to look at it and go, what a piece of shit, and toss it in the garbage. So, you know, it was those things. Ultimately, I think I said to myself, look, man, you, you, you have to write this book. And, and not for fans, though, obviously, that was a huge part of it. I did have this relationship that, that no other writer had, and, and maybe I had this little window that, that, that fans maybe wanted to look through. So, yes, it was for them. Uh, you know, mainly it was kind of for myself. I, I didn't want to, you know, say 10 years from now, you know what, man, you, you should have written that book. That was a chicken's way out, you know. So you write a book and it doesn't come out good. You don't put it out or you, whatever. But, but you, you have to write that book. And I think that's ultimately what it was, you know, kind of a... Did you know he was ill? I did. I did. Uh, I didn't know he was that ill. I had actually, and I read my book, I had reached out to him a few years earlier, and I hadn't spoken to him in years. And, and uh, it was, an, it was a, first I sent an email, I hadn't heard anything. I got his phone number. I had a phone number that was no longer in use. I had another phone number, and, hi, this is Edward. And I got, uh, you know, I, I heard his vo voice the first time in years. It was his uh, answer machine. So I left the message, Ed, you know, I, I, we haven't spoken for years. Hey, man, I miss you. I hope you're okay. And I, I never heard that. No, I didn't know he was that ill when I began the book. I did start the book on August 24th. I remember that because it was my birthday. I thought, well, I'm going to start it. Let's start it today. And Edward passed away uh, October. I'm sorry, I forget the, the exact day in October. So it was, you know, several weeks before he passed away in, in 2020. But no, I had no idea uh, he was that sick. Where can people get the book, Steve? People can get the book uh, in several places. You can get it on Amazon, Reverb, or Etsy. And if you just go to any of those sites and just type in Tone Chaser and Steve Rosen, it will come up. Or you can get the book uh, directly from me uh, through PayPal. And that link is paypal.me backslash Tone Chaser. Paypal.me backslash Tone Chaser. Uh, and if you're in the U.S., it's $47. And if you're international, uh, just go find my Facebook page and uh, I can give you some shipping rates because it's, it's different everywhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm really proud of the book. And, uh, I, you know, I think, I think Van Halen fans so far, the responses I've gotten have been pretty amazing. So, you know, I think you guys should check it out. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. 
There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, I'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.